morning. If you would turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. As you're turning there, let's remember our four members who are on the ground in South Africa. This is our second trip to South Africa. Our intent is to partner with a church there seeking to reach an unreached people group called the Swana people. An unreached people group is a, a group that has less than 2% of its people Christian. And so it's a very important uh, assignment they're on. If you would be praying for them every day, covering them with prayer. If you're not praying for them every day, maybe you're not as missional as you need to be. Uh, this is crucial what they're doing. We need to have a heart for the nations. If we don't have a heart for the nations, it may be the gospel needs to warm our heart. And so be praying for them, pray for their families, and pray that God will use them in a mighty way to reach the lost. All right? If you would look with me in Luke 18, and we will pray uh, for them as well. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called, Jesus called them, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this text. It reminds us of the qualities that we are to have if we're to enter the kingdom. We pray that you, your spirit would work those qualities within us today, even as we hear the preached word. And I pray for any that are here today that do not have those qualities because they've not entered the kingdom. That today you would birth those qualities within them in the new birth. And Father, we pray as well for the four who are on the field, on the ground in South Africa. Thank you for sending them. Thank you for raising them up. Give them grace. Pray you would protect them. We pray you would open up doors of opportunity. Thank you for the good report that we've heard thus far. We pray for their families. We pray for them here. Yet you give them peace. We pray that when they come back, they would have a testimony that would cause us to stand in awe of your glory, your power, your wisdom, and your grace. We ask these things today in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Dana Tierney, in an article in the New York Times Journal, tells of how he, she and her husband John, who writes for the New York Times, renounced their childhood faith. They had a son named Luke, and at the age of four, they had their son baptized just to appease their parents, but that was all. Well, one day, John, her husband, was assigned by the New York Times to be an embedded reporter in Iraq. And she was just so fearful about that assignment. But she was also surprised to see how peaceful her four-year-old son was, how calm he was. She chalked it up to just being kind of, uh, you know, naive in his childhood. Until one day they were watching television and there was a special on about a soldier who had come back from Iraq. He came home to be married. And uh, he began to talk about having to go back to Iraq. And 
he began to share on camera how fearful he was about going back. And again, it provoked those fears within. Then she noticed in the corner of her eyes that Luke had his hands clasped like he was praying. And she said, Luke, are you praying? He said, no, Mom, I'm not praying. But then a few minutes later, she caught him doing it again. And he finally admitted, yes, Mom, I pray. And she was surprised by a couple of things. First of all, she was surprised by his faith. But she was also surprised that his faith had brought such calm and peace in his young heart when she was gripped with fear. She was also embarrassed. She was embarrassed that her four-year-old son immediately knew that it was not the socially acceptable thing to do in their home. That is to pray. What she doesn't understand is that Luke was created as the image of God. And to be created as the image of God is to be created for communion with God. And so it was natural for Luke to drift into prayer. And in this article, she describes how all of her unbelieving secular friends in New York feel freed from religion as if they've been liberated from some kind of superstition. But she doesn't. Though she's not yet a believer, she feels like she's missing out on something. What Dana doesn't realize yet is that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to come like her four-year-old son. You have to come like a child. And our text teaches us that today. In fact, this text is so important It's recorded in all three synoptic Gospels. Matthew 19, Mark chapter 10, and Luke chapter 18. Now, by way of reminder, uh, Luke is writing to a particular person. He's writing to the most excellent Theophilus so that he would have certainty concerning the things he's been taught. The whole Gospel is addressed to one man named Theophilus. We don't know for sure who he is, but we have a good idea. He describes him as the most excellent Theophilus, which means he's a high up in the Roman government. That's how they were characterized and described. So he is probably a high up in the Roman government, the kingdom of Rome, if you will, and he's a new convert to the faith. In fact, his name means lover of God. That's probably not his real name. That's his alias name that Luke has given him. And so he's writing to this man who is an authority figure in the kingdom of Rome... To remind him that when all hell breaks loose on his life for now embracing the Lord Jesus Christ, the true king, that he is worthy for suffering for. He's worthy for being persecuted for. Because Jesus is the true king. And the kingdom that he is ushering in is the true and eternal kingdom. In fact, two times in this passage, short passage, three verses, two times the the word kingdom is used. Now, what is the kingdom? We've already seen the kingdom. We all need to know how to define the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the establishment of God's saving reign, His authority and covenantal presence over the hearts of people through 
the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Messiah. That's what the kingdom of God is. In fact, what provoked this discussion, uh, we have to go all the way back to chapter 17, verse 20, where the Pharisees asked Jesus, when is the kingdom coming? They had a faulty idea of the kind of kingdom that would come. And Jesus said, the kingdom's in your midst. The kingdom is here and now in a person. And you're looking at him. And then the disciples asked about the future consummation of the kingdom. He said, where? They said, where will this kingdom be? And he says, where the corpses are, there the uh, vultures will be. When I return, I will return as a judge. I will judge those who have not entered this kingdom. Well, today, we kind of look at another question. How? How does one enter this kingdom? In fact, he's already discussed that in some measure in the previous parable. He speaks about a Pharisee and he speaks about a tax collector. The Pharisee thought that God would in some way validate his works. He would commend his works, all the things that he had done. Tax the tax collector rather comes. He has nothing to offer but his sin. He can't even look up. All he has to offer is the sin that he is repenting of. And Jesus said, that's the one who goes away justified. That's the one who will be forgiven. And now he's going to give us another story that kind of serves as a bridge between that parable and the story of the rich young ruler that we will look at next week. Um, in fact, this is a natural bridge because at the end of that parable in Luke uh, 18, 14, he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he gives us a story that kind of demonstrates that. Well, this story begins with the desire of some parents. Some real longing for some parents. And notice in verse 15 it says, They were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. We see immediately here, but not surprisingly, that Jesus was a natural with children. Um, and that the parents were doing their due diligence to bring their children, their infants, to Jesus so that they, he could touch them. The word here, infants, let me give you a word here. It's called bref it's, The word is brephos. B-R-E-P-H-O-S. Um, this word typically refers to infants who have been born. It's also used in chapter 1, verse 41, of John the Baptist, who's in the womb of his mother Elizabeth. And what I want to say here just a moment is that from the divine perspective, the child in the womb has the same status as a child who is born. We need to keep that in mind when we see 1.2 million abortions taking place in our country every year. God forbid a country that would yawn at that kind of infanticide. And God forbid us voting for anyone who would say a woman has a right to abort an infant. That's just for free. That has nothing to do with our sermon. <laughs> but the same word is also used... In 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, it refers to young children who are old enough to understand the teaching of Scripture. 
And so we see the, the child in the womb to the young child who understands Scripture has the same status before God. But we also see in verse 16 that a more general term for children is used in this passage. And so uh, there's a variety of children here. It's not just infants. It's all kinds of young children they're bringing to Jesus. Now, there was nothing magical about the touch, okay? Um, This is steeped in Jewish tradition. It goes as far back as uh, the time of Genesis 48 when Jacob laid his hands, Israel, his new name, laid his hands on Manasseh and Ephraim and blessed them. It had become a tradition since then. What's remarkable, though, is that in this context, this would have been countercultural. Why? Because Jesus was not a trained rabbi. He had not been trained in the rabbinical schools. He had no credentials, if you will. If he were living today, he would say he did not have a seminary degree. He had not been to Bible college. Um, and, and, and so in a very real sense, these parents who bringing their infants to Jesus are bypassing the rabbis. They are in a very real sense renouncing the religion of the day, which is a perverted form of Judaism, a works-based faith. Here was a new teacher, a new rabbi, if you will, who hadn't been to the schools, but he spoke with the very authority of God. We saw that as far back as Luke chapter 41, or chapter 4, verse 31 and 32. This one spoke with the authority of of God himself. And these parents were drawn to him. And that's what they want for their children. Now this text is a challenge and encouragement to all parents. To follow the example of these parents who were diligently bringing their children to Jesus. Now how do we do that today? How do we bring our children to Jesus We bring them under the means of grace. That's the answer. You bring your children under the means of grace. That becomes your heart's cry. Now, what is the means of grace? The means of grace are the activities within the fellowship of the church that God uses to give more grace. It's not a wage we earn. It's not means to grace. It's means of grace. God has provided these means whereby he draws sinners to himself and he builds them up in grace. Scripture gives us plenty of means of grace. It begins in the home. You are cutting your children off from means of grace if you do not regularly lead your home in family worship. If you're not leading your wife and your children in family worship, if you're not reading the Word of God in your home and you're praying over your wife and over your children, you are cutting your family off of vital means of grace. It's unfair to them, in fact. And it's going to have disastrous consequences in the end. But the main means of grace that the Scripture gives us are given within the context of the local church. The local church is a vital means of grace for the people of God. Preaching of the word. Teaching of the word. Discipleship. 
the Lord's Supper. All of these different things are means. And it amazes me how some parents let their children call the shots when it comes to how much body life that child will be immersed in. Never in the history of parenting, never in the history of parenting has children called the shots like they do in today's climate. Since when do the inmates run the asylum? <laughs> but children are calling the shots and saying, so I don't want to go. Okay. You appease them. How does a child determine what's going to really bring blessing to him or her? The parents have a responsibility to bring their children under the means of grace. Body life is a vital means of grace. When, I, when my children are grown up, I want them to look back on their childhood, and I want almost every memory to be related to the local church. And for those of you who are serving our children, I commend you. I commend you. I commend you for being a part of our children's ministry. Some think that children's ministry is secondary to adult ministry. Yet I would say for those of you working with Awana, what you do every Wednesday is as vital as what those four in South Africa are doing right now. I would say what you're doing right now is as vital as what I'm doing in this pulpit. Children's ministry is crucial. And I would also commend for those of you who work in the nursery and in the Sunday school ministry to our children. You know, think about it. When a child is led to Christ, he has the rest of his life to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Most full-time missionaries, their testimony is that they were converted to Christ at a young age. And so we need that joy in Christ that these parents had. We need it restored so that we will be provoked to bring our children to Jesus as diligently as these parents did in this text. But it's a joyful occasion that's about to end because of the knucklehead disciples. Look with me in the second part of verse 15. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. They rebuked the people bringing their children, their infants to Jesus. Now, the disciples' motivation isn't clear, but they should have known better. In fact, Jesus has already told them back in chapter 9 in a context where they're having this kind of Muhammad Ali discussion. Who's the greatest? The disciples want to know who's the greatest among the disciples. An argument arose. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, Luke 9, 48, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. Of course, this isn't the only place that Jesus or the disciples have attempted to keep people from Jesus. You remember in Luke chapter 9, uh, you had people who were hungry. Uh, the disciples wanted to send them away. 
You've got this Canaanite woman in chapter 15 who wants Jesus to heal her daughter. The disciples want to send them away. Simply put, at this moment, the 12 disciples did not have the compassion of Jesus. And the various circumstances of life brought that out, just like it does with us. Keep in mind, our lack of compassion... And our lack of engagement with other people around us, especially with needy people, especially with lost people and children, is simply a symptom of something deeper. Oh, I'm just shy. No, you're loveless. Okay, let's keep that in mind. You, 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 you lack compassion. Our lack of compassion for people is not the real issue. It's the symptom of the real issue which is a heart issue. Horizontal lovelessness. Lovelessness on the horizontal plane is a symptom of vertical lovelessness. Okay? Love for God, all right, produces love for those around us. Love for those around us proves our love for God. Let me say that again. Love for God produces love for those around us. Love for those around us prove our love for God. And so when that compassion, that love is lacking, it signals my love for God is not as fervent as it should be. In other words, it's a symptom that we're not receiving the kingdom like a child. Now, None of us will stand before God and be forgiven and declared righteous because we love God perfectly. The fact is, none of us love God perfectly. None of us here today, the godless among us, love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. Our standing before God is due to the fact that we have been united to Christ who did love the Lord his God with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he was crushed to death on the cross because of our failure to love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay, let's get that straight. However, if I'm unrepentant in my lovelessness and this love is not beginning to show in my life in some new way, it may be that I've not entered the kingdom of God. Well, these disciples are compassionless at this point. And let me just say, most of us are not guilty of the disciples' sin of commission here. Now, what is a sin of commission? I've used that a lot, but what is it? Maybe you don't know what it is. A sin of commission is when you do something you're not supposed to do. Okay? Let's say you egg your neighbor's house. That's a sin of commission. All right? But if your neighbor is sick... And you don't reach out to your neighbor, offering them food and care. That's a sin of omission. In other words, the sin of commission is when you do something you're not supposed to do. A sin of omission is when you don't do something that you should do. Most of us are not guilty of the sin of commission here. We don't actively rebuke people for coming to Jesus. But I wonder, are we guilty of the sin of omission in this text? 
You see, when we're, our highest priority as parents is not to bring our kids to Jesus. And the highest priority of grandparents and the highest priority of the church is not to get our children and even other lost people to Jesus. We are guilty of the sin of omission here. And men, let me just speak to you a second. God has designed it that you are to be the leaders of your home. It's not because you're better or superior than your wives. Before God, you are equal. But each one of us has different roles. Uh, we have distinct functions. Um, it's the natural law of the soul that men lead their homes. And that's why typically if a man loves camping, the home, the family will love camping. If a man loves canoeing, the, the family will love canoeing. If a man loves sports, the family as a whole will love sports. The man sets the tone in the home. It's the way God designed it. And so if a man does not live as if Jesus is supreme over all other treasures, he's leading his family down that path. Or if a man professes Christ but is not in the Word and is not immersing his family in church life, body life, he is saying to his family, you can follow Jesus and not do all these things. Okay? And when we do that, we are no different than the disciples here who were keeping these young people from Jesus. And so seizing on this opportunity, and Jesus always did that. He's the, he's the wise man. He's the one in whom all the Proverbs point to. He is our sage. He is our wisdom from God. Seizing upon this opportunity... He teaches us something radical and important about the nature of the kingdom. And we see in verses 16 and 17 the response of Jesus. And he says, Jesus called to them saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now let's begin with the obvious here. Jesus loved and cared for children. And so if we're going to follow Jesus as Lord and go where he goes, we have to have the same concern for children that Jesus had. If Jesus remembers... We're a member of the First Baptist Church of Fisherville. I promise you he would be involved in some way in our children's ministry. He would at least work the nursery. All right? Jesus loved children. But these words would have been very radical in that day, as I've already seen. For one, uh, for one reason, Jesus wasn't a rabbi. But there's another reason these words would have been radical. And it's because of this. Children were not esteemed in the first century. We esteem children, and we should. It's a noble thing to esteem children. But we need to enter the first century for a moment, okay? In our world, 
If you want to get votes, you kiss babies. If you want uh, to raise funds as a relief organization, you show hungry children in pictures and ads. But in that world, you had high infant mortality rates. And there was a, a dire need for child labor. And so there was no place for sentimentality when it came to children. And so the disciples had the same perspective of the day. And with that in mind, Jesus says, Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. This is not a proof text for infant baptism. It is remarkable to me how many people in church history have used this as a proof text for, churches, for, uh, for infant baptism. Last night I was reading in a, a book called Historical Theology. Martin Luther held this text out as a proof for infant baptism. Zwingli, following him, held this text out as a proof for infant baptism. This is not a proof for infant baptism. What he's getting at here is that Jesus or the uh, children have something to teach us about the nature of entering the kingdom. Jesus is saying that children have no clout. They have no credits, and they have no claims they can make, all right? And in the same way, if you're going to enter the kingdom, you have no clout, you have no credits, you have uh, none of these things that will allow you to enter the kingdom. All you can do is come like the tax collector. The tax collector had nothing in his hands all he brought to his situation was his sin that he turned from. You know, everything else in life we, we earn. You know, if you're going to enter a school, you have, to, you have to make grades. If you're going to get into a club, uh, you have to have people who recommend you. They have to write letters for you. And, and, and you have to have a, a certain amount of social standing in the culture. If you're going to make a team, uh, you make a team by works, okay? You make a team by performance. But if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you have no clout, you have no claims, you have no credits. Jesus is saying that children have no status and no works from which to barter God. And we don't either. They do nothing except add responsibility to others. They don't have a W-2. They don't help pay bills. They add to the bills. In other words, they don't do, they are done for. That's what Jesus is teaching. Jesus says no one enters the kingdom like the Pharisee in the previous parable. They come like the tax collector. They don't come by what they've done or who they are. You enter the kingdom by what Jesus has done and who he is. We come utterly dependent. One scholar writes, They cannot count on any achievements of their own. Their hands are empty like those of a beggar. With an authority such as only God can claim, he promises the kingdom to those whose faith resembles the empty hands of a beggar. Such faith is possible because they have no achievements of their own. And so it is everyone who's born into the kingdom. Maybe that's you today. 
Maybe you realize, I've been doing the church thing. I've been doing the religion thing. I've been trusting that in the end it'll be okay. Jesus is saying, you have to come like a child. You have to come with the empty hands of faith. All children do are receive the care that is given them. Furthermore, they receive it with a very a wide-eyed wonder. The narratives you speak into your children's lives by way of teaching and by way of example, they tremendously impact their lives because they have this kind of full-minded faith that will receive anything you teach by way of words or example. In other words, if you teach your children that playing golf is more important than corporate worship, that's the narrative they embrace. If you teach your kids that you can live the Christian life without an open Bible, that's the narrative they embrace. If you can teach your children, if you teach by way of example that you can live the Christian life without being on your knees, that's the narrative they embrace. That's why we must teach the kingdom narrative to our children on a daily basis. Because trust me, this lost world has a narrative that's making claims as well. They're making claims on your children's souls every day. And you have to counter those claims with a superior treasure and pleasure. Last Saturday, we were having family devotions eight days ago. And my daughter Ella asked the question, if Jesus, if Jesus defeated the devil at the cross and in the resurrection, how is it that the devil continues to cause damage? That's a good question, isn't it? And, and, and I began to speak a little bit, trying to speak on that level of how Jesus has ushered in the kingdom, but there's coming a day when he's going to consummate everything. And in the providence of God, the mysterious providence of God, uh, the devil has been permitted to exercise tragic sway over the hearts of people today. And yet he knows, Revelation 12, that his time is short. Because he knows that when Christ was raised from the grave, he was defeated. And I say when he returns, he's going to publicly destroy the devil. And cast him into hell. And my son Seth looked at me with wide eyes. And in an uncharacteristic soft tone. Said. I want to see him. I want to see him. When he comes. That's what Jesus is getting at right here. And that's why Luke is writing to Theophilus. And that's why Luke is writing to us, because he's showing us what a kingdom disciple looks like. Is that you this morning? Are you a kingdom disciple? Have you come into the kingdom like a child? Are you zealous that your children enter that kingdom? Not by just some one time, yeah, my child has the fire insurance. I know that was there they got, when they got baptized. I was there when they prayed the prayer. No, I'm talking about daily. Bringing them under the means of grace so they could be brought to Jesus daily. Is that where you are today? You know, one of the glorious things about the Lord's Supper, one of the great things is that it demonstrates what we've been talking about today. Because you see, every night when my wife cooks our dinner, 
Our children come to the table, and they are fed at the table. They didn't do anything to earn that food or to cook it. They just eat it. At the Lord's Supper, we're reminded we don't do anything to warrant the kingdom. We just eat what Jesus has provided in his broken body and his shed blood. And if you're visiting with us today, if you are a convert, you have repented of your sins, you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for the payment of your sins and in him alone, and you were baptized by immersion after that conversion, and you're a member in good standing of a gospel church, a like-minded church, we invite you to participate with us today. This is not the supper of the Fisherville Church or the Southern Baptist Convention. This is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we approach the table, let's, let's have a time of reflection and a time of examination so that we do not take the table unworthily. Let's come to the table as children this morning.